Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Nendo Shula, how are you settling into your new life? Oh, I know what will cheer up. Why don't we take a picture together? Look at the camera. 
Mona. I'll send it to you. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike Weiss. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. And joining me for this month is Mr. Spencer Seams. Oh, hello, and thank you for uh, inviting me on for a whole month. African Cinema Month concludes with the 2017 film from Rangano Noyoni, I Am Not a Witch. It's the story of a little girl who is accused of being a witch who kind of just goes along with things. She's introduced to a whole witch community while being exploited by the powers that be. It's an interesting look at gender roles in Zambia as well as the country's economic hardships. We will definitely be spoiling this film as we go ahead. You have been warned. So Spencer, when was the first time you saw i am not a witch and what did you think it would have been when it first was available uh, in the u.s because the thing that did like a limited release and uh, tied with a uh, uh, streaming because a friend of mine saw it in boston in a theater and he loved it and he we talked to him about on my on my show last season this is my third time seeing it and i'm still middle of the road on it uh i have issues with it but overall it's uh it's a good movie that uh, I would not say skip. Like it's still it's a still a good movie, but I there's some things we'll, I'll talk about when we get to it. And Sam, was this the first time viewing for you? No, I saw it when it came out. It played at a film festival in Philly, and based on the very limited description that I first read, I knew I had to see it because I love these kinds of movies that play with coming-of-age stories and magical realism and, and things like that. And it was such a surprise to me, mostly because I think I can be a curmudgeon about new movies. And it was, you know, nice to sort of fall in love with this one. I know. I know your opinion that no real cinema has happened ever since The Human Centipede. Everything else is garbage. But <laughs> I, I mean, I can go along with that with you. It's so easy to to be kind of grumpy and not, you know, specifically about human centipede, but that tends to be my default that, you know, no good, especially when it comes to genre movies, no good movies were made after 1985 or 1990 or whatever the arbitrary date is. So I'm trying to get better. I had never heard of this film before until Spencer, you brought it up, even though it was, this is the most recent film of all the movies that we've covered only being released in 2017. So you would have thought that I might've heard of it, but no, not at all. Also one of the easier films to get it's right out there on Blu-ray, beautiful edition of it. Fantastic. So that was really nice as well. And I was, just, well, I can't say I was delighted by this film. I was intrigued and I was captivated by this movie, especially some of the visuals are just so great. Like from the get go, when you start in that witch camp, I'm putting that in air quotes and all of those women just sitting there. And then when they start to like howl and laugh and they've got the makeup on their face or the painting on their face. I'm like, okay, what the hell is this? I am with this movie no matter what occurs. And it just kept getting better and better as the film went on, at least for me. I'm, I'm curious to hear, Spencer, some of your issues with it. But for me, I was just like, I'm here for this ride and take me along. 
the ribbons. The first time I saw it, I I was like, wait, what's happening here? So for anybody who hasn't seen it, the witches in the witch camp, one of the elements that uh, Neoni, the director, added, because so witch camps, I, I don't know if you've talked about this on past episodes for this month, but witch camps actually exist in places around Africa, like Zambia, and especially in Ghana. But a detail that she added was this idea that the witches are tied to these giant spools with this really long ribbon and built into the dialogue is they talk about how things are better now and they have more freedom because they have more ribbon. It's so brilliant because it's just wonderful kind of satire, but it's also so heartbreaking at the same time. And that's so many things about this movie. It's like, it's funny, but at the same time, you're, you're a little crushed. The first time I saw it, I didn't realize it was like a dark satire. I was just like, this is kind of dull, but interesting. And then I read an interview with uh, Niani about, she referenced Lanthimos. And so with that in mind, it's like, okay, this is like a Lanthimos-ish sense of humor. But like the comedy for me never lands. It always falls flat. I didn't really see a lot of comedy. I mean, I guess there is some dark comedy to it, especially, I mean, right from the beginning when she is brought into this uh, police station, this witch, Shula, who's just this little girl who wears kind of like, it looks like a burlap bag for a dress. It was a t-shirt. It had hashtag booty call on it. Just the material looks so rough. I thought that's why I thought it was a burlap bag. I think it's just the one thing she has. And so like, it's been roughed up after, you know, however many years or whatever she's had it. And she's brought into this police station. And this whole scene, I mean, the name of the movie, every time I walked by the Blu-ray, I just immediately thought of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I'm not a witch. I'm not a witch. And then this scene is basically that scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where it's like, you know, this guy's like, oh, yeah, she came into my field and she cut my arm off. And he still has two arms. So I'm just like, what makes you think she is a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt. A newt. We got better. And the cop is like, and what happened to your arm then? <laughs> and he's like, well, then the dream ended. And everybody's just like, oh, what are you doing to us? But yeah, I, I mean, there are some darker moments. And, and the one uh, bureaucrat, Dr. or Mr. Banda. Mr. Banda. Like, he is kind of comedic figure, but also he's kind of scary to me. Like, I never know what he's going to do. And he is just there to exploit Shula and use her as this tool for him to get ahead, which I found fascinating that he is this government guy who's using this witch, quote unquote. But then at the same time, I mean, everything that she does seems to be right, even down to the rain. And we'll definitely be talking about that. But when she accuses, uh, they have this whole line of suspects at one point who stole this old man's dowry money. And she picks out the guy from the crowd who stole the money. And then they actually find the money at his place. And it's like, okay, did she really know that? Was it a lucky guess? Like, I always saw that as the plant, the police planted it there after she 
it's just decided it was him. I couldn't see them having the money to plant. That was also my assumption, is that they wouldn't really have had that much money to just go around stashing on pe- on people. But I like the ambiguity, though, that it sort of hints that maybe she has powers or maybe she just is using some kind of accidental intuition she doesn't isn't fully aware of. But back to the comedy briefly, I think Mr. Banda is the funniest part of the film because he's sort of this bumbling bureaucrat. And so the, the scenes that like made me pretty much laugh out loud, like the one where she, so they make her go all around in this bus. And once Mr. Banda kind of figures out that maybe she won't be that useful working at the witch camp. So the witch camp, and I don't think we've said this, but the witch camp, it sort of doubles as like a tourist attraction, but they also, yeah, they also force them to farm. And so it's like they have to do manual labor and be an attraction as like, oh, look at these scary witches. And so it seems like once they realize she won't be good at manual labor because she's too small and the other witches do become kind of protective of her, he starts carting her around and making her go on these like official outings. And there's this really funny scene where the doors to the bus are locked and she's inside the bus. And like, all she would have to do is get up and open the door, but she doesn't. She, and most of the comedy with her is that she just doesn't do anything. And he tries to like break into the bus, but he doesn't want to get his suit dirty. And it reminds me of some of those like uh, earlier movies where you have like a, there's some film noir like this. There's some sort of fantasy like this where you have these kind of bureaucratic Satan type characters where there's something fundamentally ridiculous about them while at the same time they have that sense of menace that you were talking about, Mike. Well, he's got that almost Idi Amin look to him sometimes. So I'm just like, what's going to happen with this guy? And yeah, like you can tell that he is just interested in getting ahead by using her somehow, especially when he goes to the one I think might be the only white guy in the entire film. And he's just like, it'll rain, it'll rain. And it's like, okay. So I like the way that they convey that there are issues with the rain where we cut at one point to this big field and there's this green tree and then they cut and it's another field. I think it's another field and a very brown tree. And then it's like, suddenly this becomes part of the narrative is that we haven't had any rain. And so he takes her to this dude who seems to be an authority figure and is like, Oh yeah, yeah, it'll rain. It'll rain. And by this time, yeah, she is shutting down. She doesn't want to be exploited anymore. So she just, hunches down and has this cover over her and she won't move or anything. And then they rip the cover off of her and they just start moving her hands going, it'll rain. It'll rain. (laughs) It's devastating. I see Bond uh, not as like, he's a scary figure in some ways, but he's also so lazy and like his laziness really came through this time. Cause like every opportunity where he can do something, he says, Oh no, you do it to the nearest person near around him. So, like, the threat is there, but you 
but you also get the feeling he's never actually going to like physically hurt her or like you know or do anything because like he because he is, is too lazy to do it himself he is one of these people who's just fucking everybody over to get ahead and even in the witches are fucking people over i'd love that whole scene of the woman that shows up at the camp and she has all those wigs those horrible wigs and the witches are just like oh well we'll use uh what shula gets because when shula does an act of witchcraft that is deemed good she gets uh sacrifices so she'll get a whole basket with like oranges and gin and all these things in there and so now the witches are like oh well we can start to use shula's winnings quote unquote and use that to barter for other things like these wigs that we suddenly find very necessary it's so sad and i think that's what keeps it from being just a black comedy is it's like every scene is undercut with this sense that she just doesn't have anyone. And I mean, that's how the whole thing starts is she shows up to this village and they don't really know her. And because she's an outsider, they just accuse her of being a witch. And she's, it seems like she's too scared to say that she isn't. And so she just, because she says nothing, that's how she sort of gets swept into this whole adventure. But that's the part that kind of upset me the most or that I found to be the most depressing is that the other women in the witch camp do kind of look out for her, but also exploit her at the same time. Although the way that they, I forget how they actually say it, but she tried, the lady tries to call them Nicki Minaj wigs, but she switches the letters around. <laughs> it's, it's so funny. <laughs> Oh, it's not Rihanna. It's like a Rahana wig, and there's like Beyonce is like it's just it's a very like I do appreciate that of like the uh, mangling of like pop stars, which I feel like maybe is a co- comment on like Western culture, maybe being translated or retranslated uh, like overseas, possibly. But maybe I'm thinking too much into like that that little thing. Yeah, because the world that they're in doesn't look like it's 2017. It looks like it's much older, but then when they're like, oh yeah, Rihanna, Beyonce, Madonna, they are well aware of what's going on in U.S. pop culture, and it's like, why? Why would anybody be interested or know what's happening there? But, okay. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just kind of a cultural trickle-down, is you can't you can't avoid hearing about hello it is ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day couldn't we just to make up for things like sitting in traffic doing the dishes counting your steps you know all the mundane stuff that is why i'm such a big fan of chumba casino chumba casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You said earlier that this was 
set in Zambia, but the uh, Arangano uh, Niani, she, I found in multiple interviews, she always specifies she didn't intend it to be uh, Zambia. She just wanted it to be like vaguely Africa to show like it's just a thing that happens across a continent as a whole. And like she made a point to never show a Zambian flag or uh, mention Zambian cities. Although I think there's like a brief mention of the capital, uh, Lusaka. Yeah, but she uh, did make a point to like not specify Zambia. I mean, I think because it's shot in Zambia, it just is sort of easy to assume that that's where it's supposed to be set. I really appreciated the scene where they determine that she's a witch. Uh, the whole thing with the witch doctor and kind of talking about modernism versus not. He comes in and he's like, look at me, look at the way that I'm dressed. I'm a witch doctor. And he just like keeps like, and he like takes off his, his pants and he's just like, see, I'm a witch doctor. And he like basically like nothing up my sleeves kind of thing. But then in his headdress, it looks like kind of like gold lame foil inside of there. So it's like each of these traditional dresses that they have has a modern element to it. I even noticed with her when she's dressed up in her outfit, I can't remember what it was, but there's something where it's just like, okay, well, that's very, you know, 20th century or almost 21st century. So it's interesting that they have this mix of old and new and that, you know, you're able to take these older things like the uh, the ribbons and these and mix them with newer culture as well. But yeah, and that scene with the witch doctor, I also very much appreciated it after we talked about Tukibuki earlier in this month that there is an implied chicken sacrifice and you get to see blood, you know, splatter over on Dr. or Mr. Banda's shoes, but you don't actually get to see the chicken being killed, which I was very glad that we can just move to more of an implied chicken um, sacrifice. Uh, if we're talking like animal death on screen, like Tukibuki, the stuff of that, like it's traumatic and which is the point, but with like, if it's a chicken, cause I've seen a few African films where a chicken is killed on screen where I'm like, I'm kind of okay with it. Yeah, like, it doesn't bother me that much, but, like, I think it's might just because, like, in, with Tukibuki, it's it's a cow. It's, like, a fully grown cow, and you see it breathe its last breath, and a goat, which is a, also a big animal. But a chicken is just, like, it's kind of smaller, so it's not as horrific to watch. Are you specious against chickens? Okay. I was definitely surprised that you didn't see the chicken die, because I think I'm just so accustomed to it not to also be specious but in movies with animal violence chickens and pigs are usually the first to go people are the least upset about those because it's maybe more culturally common but here it really surprised me the first time i saw this that there wasn't more time spent going into rituals and you know ceremonial practices watching it again the second time around it's something that i really liked because it makes it seem like such a sham a lot of the time with movies like this there is this element of exoticism or of you know, nostalgia for traditionalism. If you're talking about older cultural customs that are uh, religious or spiritual, but here 
it almost seems like everything that happens, it doesn't happen for any genuine spiritual reason. It's just, this is how we do things and nobody's really questioning it. So we're just going to keep doing it. But everyone kind of seems to think that it, or everyone, at least my, my reading of it was everyone seems to sort of accept when Mr. Bonda says she's a witch while at the same time, sort of thinking that it's bullshit. Morgana said in, in one of the interviews I watched that a major part of the witch camps and like the enforcement of witch camps is complacency on both sides. And so in Ghana, she said that the witch camps would have an invisible um, statue that would keep the witches, you know, uh, within a certain area. But that can only work if they believe they, they are witches. And so there's like this, a double... And for, and for Zambia, I'm not a ribbon. I forgot what she said in Zambia, but it's an equally uh, bullshit thing of like it, it's there's nothing physically keeping them there. It's just like the cultural uh, belief of like they're they're the magical force keeping you here, and both sides have to believe in it in order for it to continue. Well, you mentioned Lanthimos earlier, and I agree. Like Lanthimos is great for me for the use of the ironic cut. And you definitely have that here, like talking about the scene with the witch doctor and the chicken. And like at this point, I'm expecting this little girl is not a witch. And they're going to prove that she's not a witch right here because there's this whole thing of like, if the chicken dies within this circle, then she's a witch. And otherwise, she's not. And you don't see the chicken running around the circle or any of that kind of stuff. You've seen the circle. You see that it's pretty darn tiny. And I imagine that the chicken has the run of the room. So I'm just like, okay, yeah, well, there's no way this chicken's going to end up in the circle. Cut. Do you think they really killed the chicken? Or do you think they just like, had like, a fake blood squirt? I think it was not killed for the movie at all from the use of the sound effects and from the use of the, the spray of the blood. And the way that we never really see that. I also appreciated that she was using still frames, though I thought my Blu-ray had busted for a second the first time. still. <laughs> I thought my TV was fucking up when that happened. I always forget that scene every time. But there's a couple times where it's like, you don't know what's happening with this. Or like, they put her in this room with a knife and they're like, okay, if you accept being a witch then you'll let us know in the morning and then of course you know cut and she's like i'm a witch and it's like okay i didn't expect that i didn't expect that she was going to go along with this charade and then yeah the weird part to me is that she might actually be a witch and that's a double complacency angle like if you think it's bullshit then she clearly believes in the the lie too but with the, with the witch versus goat angle goats are a common food uh, like everywhere like Maybe except for the U.S., but uh, is there an actual choice? Because like they pick goat, which is a common you know meal. So I'm thinking like she'll be sacrificed if she chooses to be a goat. That is how I read it. Is that she doesn't actually have a choice because they do say to her, you know, goats get killed and eaten, and so it's like you can be, you can admit that you're a witch and stay here in this witch camp. Or you can admit you're a goat, and I'm sure telling a kid you could be killed and eaten, maybe the kid knows that that's just meant to be symbolic, but maybe they don't. Also, I think it raises the this issue of complicity, I think raises this larger point about the fact that even if these women 
cut their ribbons or said that they weren't witches, where would they go and what would they do? I mean, this little girl has no family. The village that she tried to live in accused her of being a witch because they wanted her gone. So it's like if she said, no, I'm not a witch, is she just going to go into the wilderness by herself? And I, I think that also is probably true of all of the older women in the camp as well. It's if they say, oh, I'm not a witch, I want to leave, I'm going to cut my ribbon. No one's going to marry them. They obviously don't have any money saved up. That like It seems like there's just nowhere else for them to go. I got nowhere else to go! We'll contrast them with Mr. Bando's wife, question mark? Lover, mistress, assistant. The witch that he saved by making her a a respectable woman. Her magic trinket is that wedding ring. And the way that she'll point at that and be like, look at me, I'm respectable. And when she has her spool inside of the shopping cart, she still has to wear her ribbon, which is just amazing to me. She doesn't have to wear it at home. But when she goes out into the community, she has to wear her ribbon and she puts it in her shopping cart. And she's basically there pushing that stupid ribbon around with her. And that scene to me was one of the most horrific scenes is when people are like, look, a witch, a witch. And everybody stops and is throwing things at her and all this. And it's just like, she's, she's there like, no, no, I'm respectable. I'm respectable. And oh, that scene really got me. It's so horrific, especially because the way the scene plays out at first when Shula meets her. She's presented as this woman who lives in this really nice house and she has money and she has this comfortable lifestyle. And she kind of tells Shula, I followed everything they told me to do. If you follow everything they tell you to do, you could have a nice house and a nice life like this, or you could have even more than me. And it so rapidly is revealed to just kind of be a lie or this woman's fantasy. Mr. Banda doesn't seem to be very nice to her and kind of treats her like a slave. I love the way they're introduced is he's in the bath and she's like washing him and he, she has to answer the phone so that he can take a phone call. It just, it's like, you don't really know who she is at first, but when you learn later on that that's his wife, it's like, uh, yeah, so you know that he's basically recruited her from one of the camps. You know, there there are the older witches, and there's Shula, who's a very young witch, and then the wife in the middle. And it's like, what happened to that generation of witches? Did Banda like sell them to other people? Like, what? Why do we just see this huge disparity in age between these old crones and the young girl, and nobody in between? always sort of struck me, especially watching it the second time around, how in the beginning, when they show up with Shula at the witch camp, and they tell the witches, the women there, you know, there's a new member of your community, and they're all outraged. It's almost like watching a game show where everybody is supposed to respond with cheers or with laughter or in, in some kind of prescribed way. When he tells them, oh, here's a new witch to join you, they're all upset about it. And I 
can't help wondering what, like, why are they upset? Is it because they know what's going to happen to her or they don't want the competition or I or thought what? they were upset because she's a child. Sure, but why would that upset them? Like, she's too young? I was also thinking, is this disparity in age, is that middle section, that ring of the tree, if you will, is that when women were able to not be in that position in society and now we're going back to it? Is Shula a harbinger of things to come? Like, listen, we are getting back to the ways of young people being accused of being witches and pretty soon these camps will have more young people in them. Yeah, or maybe they were married off. And I, I think it might be a combo of like they married off into uh, like respectable homes or they got killed or uh, I, I was looking into the history of Zambia earlier today. If like there was like a many like major civil wars or anything and uh, I couldn't really find anything like connecting the idea. So I'm not really sure why the duration gap is there. It's all, I think, connected back to this idea that most of the women in those camps in, in real life, not just in the movie, are women who are outcasts in some way. And usually that's because they were too old and never got married and never had kids. And so, okay, what's wrong with them? How are they different? And... I'm guessing that's why it seems so jarring that there should be a child there because she still has those opportunities. I can't stress enough how incredible these visuals are. You know, we've talked a little bit about the ribbons and to see that flatbed semi with the big orange truck. Oh yeah. With all of the spools that are done up in this almost like tree of spools. And then the women, walking out into the fields and seeing the spools unfurl. Uh, Oh God. And there are times where you just see ribbons flying in the wind and the sun in the background. This film is gorgeous to look at so often. When you first see a truck with the spools, it's after a great cut. When, when Mr. Banda is talking about, we get a new truck, a big orange truck from the government. And then you get this nice cut. It's like, Oh, there's a, new truck from the government and it's just a, a normal looking truck clearly a hand-me-down truck but it yeah it is so that that definitely was something that struck me right away is just how beautiful it is it's like a living painting like you get like these still shots that like make me think of color pomegranates very minimal movement maybe wind blowing and it's just like Rogano and her team they are artists who know how to make the perfect image this is, I believe, her first feature in the, with a lot, a lot of shorts beforehand. So she had a good amount of practice in order to come up with how great these images are. And talk about it, just an amazing first feature. She really just knocked it out of the park. Even though I'm not too big on this movie, I, I do want to see everything else she makes. Because like, if this is like any, any indication, like... Everything will at least be thought-provoking and interesting. She was either very fortunate or very lucky or just very skilled to get that performance out of Maggie Malumbwa. She is just terrific in this. And, yeah, she doesn't speak a whole lot during this film. So much of it is just her face and just seeing how she's interpreting these horrific circumstances that she's in. 
she's so wonderful. It was great watching this little girl just and and her kind of stoic look against the rest of the world. And she is so good. She has those giant eyes, so she's so good at looking just sad without really any other body language. Like the scene that probably I think is the most heartbreaking is when she's in that little hut and her face is painted and she's, she's back at the camp and she's clearly just supposed to be a tourist attraction. And this British lady comes up and immediately can recognize something is wrong with this child. She's upset. But the way the woman responds to it is just the worst. Like she sort of says, Oh, you know, is, is anything wrong with her? Is she okay? And you think she's asking out of genuine humanity and genuine concern. And then the woman says like, Oh, maybe it will make her feel better to take a picture. And it's like, Oh, don't treat her like a zoo animal. I'll send you a copy. I'm like, what do you think she has a phone? I don't think so lady. Yeah. That, that actress is a Zambian. And I think she's probably friends with uh, Rangano because Rangano, she, uh, born in Zambia, but she grew up in Wales that actress is also Welsh um, Zambian. Well, she does a good job being detestable there. The casting of Maggie, uh, yes, Mumba. A week or two before they had to, they were filming, um, Rogano's partner uh, was taking pictures of like of uh, the area and took a picture of Maggie, and she wasn't uh, officially a part of uh, being auditioned initially. And they went through 900 girls to try to find someone and couldn't find anyone. And it was, uh, within the last week. And she stumbled upon that picture again and was like, I want to find this girl. And so they had to find this, had to find Maggie in, in the area, which was very hard because they had no clue what her name was, where she lived or anything. If she like, was this, uh, you know, like visiting for the, for like the day or whatever. But, uh, they eventually found her and like with like a couple days left. And so like, uh, she, so this movie could have been very different if cir- circumstances didn't turn out the way they did. You nailed it, Sam, with the big eyes and especially what they do with like the, uh, the two long marks on her face where it looks almost like tears. And then you get her in the, that dress that she wears when she's in her witch get up and she can barely move. It, she's almost like in a cocoon the way she's moving around there. And those, I don't know if they're like bean pods, but the way that they hang down, it almost looks like basset hound ears in front of her too. I mean, just the way that they use the outfits as well can really play up her emotional uh, feelings at that point. Even the outfit that she has to wear when she, so there's another one of the heartbreaking scenes is Mr. Bonda forces her to go on a talk show. The interviewer sort of asks him about Shula and her powers and some, there's a guy who calls in and is sort of outraged and says like, how do you know this is a witch? What if this is just a child? Like, what is she, why isn't she in school? Why doesn't she have a normal life? And because of that, they're sort of guilted into sending her to school, but they don't send her to a normal school. They send her basically to this school for other outcast kids. And she's made to be an, like, it's a pretty quick scene, but because she has to still wear her ribbon and carry her spool around, 
it's like it immediately sets her apart from these other kids who are already set apart. They do so much with costumes and props in this. It's really incredible. Yeah, and seeing the albino kids was pretty harrowing because uh, I'm not sure how common it is, but with more traditional religions in many parts of Africa, uh, albinos are uh, are killed for their body parts because they're seen as like good luck or good for stuff like that. And seeing all the albino kids was like, oh no, this makes me immediately maybe tense up because like there are reports of like even children, albino children being killed for body parts. That's definitely the biggest sort of visual signifier that she's not in just a normal kid's school. It's so heartbreaking. Well, and there's one kid who doesn't have any eyes. And yeah, it reminded me that I've been racking my brain this entire month as far as what African films I've seen and obviously haven't seen. And seeing those albino kids, it just like flashed in my mind. I was like, I saw a movie back in 2013 that was about an albino boy in a African village. And finally, I was like, okay, what is this? And I had to go back through my, my records and found that it's a movie called White Shadow. And yeah, this kid, this albino kid is in constant mortal danger the entire movie because he's an albino. It's a harrowing, harrowing film. And yeah, as soon as I saw these albino kids, I was like, okay, yeah, she's with yeah the rejects of society. And even there, she has no respect when... When Bonda wants her back, he just starts bringing that ribbon in. She's like a fucking fish on a hook and just gets pulled, oh, yanked awful. right out of the classroom. There's that scene, too, earlier when I think they're talking about her wanting to go to school and they give her a funnel. And she can put the funnel up to her ear and hear other kids playing. And that was one of those first moments where I was like, oh, this film is going to be playing with our expectations here. I did not expect her to be able to hear what I think actually was a classroom of kids because she put the funnel up to her ear. There is definitely that magical realism. And the fantasy breaks when uh, I think Mr. Bonda shows up in his, in his car. I think I lean more on it's not magical, but like that's the one element of the movie. I'm like, I don't, I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> There's even one moment too, like I talked about the the guy who robs the dowry there's a moment where they set up, oh, it's her and I think school children. They're a bunch of younger people in white and it looked like school uniforms to me. And I like how they set up like, okay, Shula, which one of these did it? And we don't know what they're being accused of. And we never see the rest of the scene. It's just this great way of setting it up to be like, she is doing this often. You know, we're not going to see every instance of her using her witch powers, I'm doing air quotes again, because she's doing it a lot. Banda must be getting a lot of stuff out of her, and that her fellow witches are just like, oh yeah, we'll use her 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 winnings, basically, to be able to pay for these wigs. It's like, okay, she is definitely in demand. I think she and Banda are going out probably every day to settle disputes. And what's the first dispute uh, with the the dowry case. One little part of that that I love is that the older women uh, say, um, it, it was a dark one, which is like, oh, well, colorism will never end. 
that moment is a great one because you're it's so it's so quick but so gutting you're just like oh god yeah and, uh, i'm speaking as someone who's light-skinned but like who can pass quote-unquote but still like I- i'm affected by colorism and it's something i'm hyper aware of whenever it comes up in uh, movies yeah it's Interesting you bring that up because I was reading this interview with Neoni where she was talking about how having the film screen for Western audiences, particularly for white people, she felt like people were maybe not getting the humor or were afraid to laugh at it because they didn't want to feel like they were being racist or sort of laughing at the people rather than laughing at the jokes. I mean, satire is tough, but this is just kind of like, like, I, I wonder how this would play for like my parents and like my girlfriend's parents, my girlfriend's white. Like, like I feel like my parents would find like, find more funny and her parents would be more uh, cringy and like not even finish it. Yeah, I don't think I cringe too much other than Banda's behavior. Like those moments were cringy for me, but like, I don't think I was being overly sensitive about stuff but that could just be because i'm an old white dude yeah i mean his behavior is i think cringy in such a universal way because it's bureaucrat cringe where it's this you know small lazy person who is just trying to amass whatever power they can by exploiting people that they perceive to be below them And I think that's why it's such a great performance that he gives, but is, is the character just is so despicable. Well, who is the woman that he actually kowtows to at one point? He comes in and he's on his hands and knees and she reads him the riot act a little bit, but I couldn't really get a beat on her and what she represented to him. Is she supposed to be the leader of the witch community? Because in the very beginning, when he first brings Shula, he addresses someone as your highness or your majesty, I think. And that's the woman that we see later who really takes him to task. Yeah, I think she, that must be it. Or like she's a government represent, representative for witches. The film deals in so many interesting ways with this issue of misogyny. And so to have a scene where he gets chewed out by a woman is pretty great. On misogyny note, so do you guys read every the ending as the teen boys that work uh, at the camp and uh, as they, they're the ones who killed her? Because I, I have always seen it as like the teen boys who like kind of do all the bidding for Banda and his cronies. Like I always see them as like they're the ones who killed um uh, Shula. I honestly don't know. I don't know either. I mean, it is pretty mysterious the way that she leaves and then we cut to the back of that kid's head and he's listening to the modern music on the headphones and driving the two cows and they're the ones that bring back the body, but they don't even really bring it back. Well, they don't bring it back in a nice way. It's all wrapped up in a white shroud and they just dump it in a field to the point where I'm like, is that what I think it is? I'm not sure. Yeah, I I couldn't tell the first time I saw it. It took a few minutes, which I think it's supposed to. But I also kind of wondered if maybe the implication was that because she did this ritual dance 
that it just made her sick and she died of exhaustion or something. Because it's so vague. Like, you see no violence at all. Yeah, it definitely doesn't smell right to me, though. Yeah, just that they dump off this shroud and then that scene, man, they shoot it so well, keeping us away from the body and keeping us wondering what's going on and the way that the witches run out the field. There's just one witch at first and her with her ribbon trailing behind her and then another and then another, then another. And just the way that those ribbons are behind all these women. Oh my God, it's fantastic. And we never get the satisfaction of getting the cut to them over the body. You know, then it's cut to another thing where we see that's the shot. I think of the ribbons and the sun I was talking about. And then when we see them all dressed in red with that white shroud amongst them and that overhead shot of them on the truck, it's like, oh, my God, this is so gorgeous. And then it starts to rain. And it's like, okay, is Shula magical? Did she actually start this rain? And I feel that it had to have been her doing it. It seems like there are too many coincidences of her potentially having powers for it to be totally skeptical about that. Uh, Ranguna did say that this is structured after like a Zambian fairy tale. And that got me thinking, because there are a a few African fantasy films I've seen, and they all do like lo-fi effects, kind of like this movie does, where they can't do like CG or anything. So like they have to just figure out like ways to imply magic. And it's like this continues the tradition of implying magic. Uh, I was just one movie. I think it's Elaine uh, from 87. Scorsese is a big fan of it. But uh, that has like a duel between wizards, but it's done in this very like practical way of, of implying they're like shooting spells at each other and like hurting each other. And, but like it's, and this movie carries that tradition. And uh, I still lean more towards like the, like the rain in particular, because like you get the, the, uh, the moment earlier of the person saying it, it, it will rain at some point. So I've always right, read yeah. it as that. When will it rain? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yes, it it will rain. (laughs) It's inevitable. (laughs) And I do like that final shot of the spools without the witches. Oh, it's so good. It also feels so, pun intended, tied to her, her death. And the fact that instead of having this mournful ceremony, they specifically call it a celebration. And it it has this sort of joyous tone, like she's gone on to do something more interesting than have to work for Mr. Bonda. Like she's gone on to a bigger adventure and the witches are going to go with her. Yeah. It definitely feels like her sacrifice has freed them before her sacrifice. When she's in a tent and it's colored red and you get the voices up from outside, like that is so creepy to me. And it feels like Suspiria. <laughs> the part of Spirio where, like, you know, the witches or are, like, you know, talking and Susie's trying to figure out what the fuck is happening. We could, although, like, this feels more sinister than that because you don't see, like, body shapes moving. It's just, like, this chorus of voices that, like, won't stop talking. I don't know how old Shula's supposed to be. And, you know, the whole idea of her being in that tent with that red lighting going on, I was just like, is this her 
period? Is this what's going on here? Is this her her changing her metamorphosis into womanhood? That's not a bad thought. That would tie into the cocoon-looking uh, costume earlier. And then I guess, well, and then even the shroud that she's in is almost another cocoon. Or maybe it's the, the, the shell that she left behind. Yeah, that is definitely, it seems like red, the color red plays a much bigger importance at the very end of the film than anywhere else. Yeah, and uh, I noticed orange comes up with Mr. Banda because he talks about the big orange truck. And then you see his first time you see his wife. I think no second time you see his wife. She's wearing orange, and he's wearing an orange tie. And there's orange stuff in their house, and that's one of the colors on the flag. But apparently, on a flag represents mineral wealth. And I'm not sure there's not much not much connection with like the flag colors, but like it's just interesting. Like orange keeps showing up with that one character in particular. I noticed how interesting their flag is just it looks almost like a a german flag tipped down its side but then there's that huge (laughs) field of green and then that little orange uh eagle or bird right over that sideways tipped flag it's very being a little familiar with graphic design i would not let this out of the shop kind of thing it just does not look like it balances out at all I like the the idea, you know, flags of the world and these things. And like, oh, which is the one? There's a one country's flag that's actually a circle. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's kind of cool. Very different. And then what each of these things represents, yeah, is always fascinating. Like, what is that bird all about? And what are these colors? Because everything has meaning. You don't just whip up a flag. And it's Africa, so there's at least two, two of the uh, Pan-African colors from that flag will be on there. Yeah, I definitely love that association between the orange on the flag with Mr. Banda as a government representative. I like, too, when we meet him, you were talking about that scene in the bathtub. I like that he's facing away from us. And so he's this mysterious figure the way that he's being shown the first time. And it's mostly just, yeah, his reaction to his wife, his reaction to the phone call. I was like, okay, that's pretty nice. And that, yeah, he's living in this luxury that this woman is bathing him. You know, that's every man's dream, right, Spencer? There are too few films that introduce a character in the bathtub. And whenever it happens, it always makes me think of Waldo Lidecker from Lara, (laughs) who is maybe the best character introduction of all time, but is also supposed to be kind of living in the lap of luxury on the phone in the bathtub. (laughs) Living that life of Trumbo. With a fairy tale angle and like the the magical realism it feels like um the guy who did um uncle boon me and cemetery of splendor uh oh yeah it feels like that where like um because liam at cinepunks he uh described like uh the use of like supernatural in those movies as it's just part of the world it's not like we're in the west and like with it with christianity based societies like the magic and like the quote unquote real world are two separate entities, but like every but other cultures, I can it's the supernatural and natural are just part of the same world and they kind of blend and merge together. And this feels like an example of like the supernatural blending with blending with the uh, you know, with the nat- with like the natural world as like we would see it. It definitely feels that way, and I really love films that do that. 
Yeah, that she goes out to the store with her spool in the shopping cart. Okay, you know, this is just kind of a part of everyday life. I'm glad that they had that moment because otherwise it could feel much more like the witches are off in this other thing. And yeah, they've got tourists that visit them and all that, but they're not necessarily integrated with the rest of society and seeing the one witch who is now respectable and trying to be part of society. It's like, okay, that's good. Cause it, it really took us and put us in the rest of the world that we have. Cause those moments with Banda bringing, you know, Shula to these different places, it doesn't necessarily feel integrated. I guess the stuff with the TV show as well also much makes it feel like it's much more part of a much larger world. But with that, with the TV show, it feels like maybe this world that you're living in, Mr. Banda, is not going to be around forever because people are starting to question this. They're starting to question when you bring a half dozen eggs and say they're Shula eggs. People are just like those reactions from the the crowd. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Everyone is a little mortified. It kind of reminded me of the reaction when the girls and cuties are dancing and they're trying to be as quote unquote sexy as possible and you have all those women in the audience just going, What the hell is happening? What is happening right now? This isn't good. And that was very much the reaction I was getting from them watching Shula up on stage. Yeah, that's definitely where I was trying to go earlier when I said that it seems like in this world people kind of accept that they're witches or accept that they're supposed to believe they're witches while at the same time thinking that it's bullshit or being deeply skeptical of it. We talked about the witch doctor earlier, and I wanted to point out, uh, Rangano did, uh, in one of the interviews, she pointed out that witch doctors in Zambia as of 2018 are still a thing, and you, and you have to be licensed to be a witch doctor. That's awesome. Sometimes, yeah, but then thinking back to that White Shadow movie, the way that they were chasing down the albino kids for their blood and skin, I was like, that was all witch doctors. You know, we we need this so that we can help, you know, of course, you know, cure um, uh, erectile dysfunction. You know, that seems to be like everybody needs that help, right? Like, oh, yeah, I can use this kid's albino tongue to do this or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that part isn't so awesome. But the, just the fact that, you know, they're licensed practitioners. But my favorite thing about this movie by far is that it opens with classical music. Well, Baroque music. I, I, I was a music major briefly, so like that's important for you to point out. It, it's Vivaldi. And the fact that they use... Because a, a common thing I see a lot is classical music and like uh, Baroque music in that era being used with wealth and like basically like upper class white people and usually it's never used with anyone middle class or lower in movies and tv and this opens with the witch camp and and you're playing vivaldi spring and it's like oh this is great they're actually like like using it in a different way and it has a different association and every time it comes up i think i wrote or at least the first few times it's used with the witches every time vivaldi music comes up yeah there's great use of music in this film especially the way it occasionally uses diegetic music and sort of cuts in some contemporary pop music 
and I just, again, I'm sorry to sound like a broken record, but I just can't stress enough how great looking this movie is. And that if you appreciate something of beauty, you're going to appreciate this movie just because it is so well shot. Yeah. Like I never thought ribbons could be so pretty to look at. I guess to me, ribbons are this sort of trite, old fashioned kind of feminine device. And here they're used in just the most stunning, poetic way, but also so sad. And that that plays into like the double complacency thing where like a ribbon is fragile and weak and you can rip it easily, but they believe, you know, uh, you know, that they are witches and the men around them believe that they are witches. So like, uh, for, for the ribbon to be effective as a, you know, to, to keep them from flying and killing people, <laughs> like they have to, you know, both sides have to believe that this ribbon, you know, is that is that magical, you know, uh, instrument. It kind of reminded me too of a little bit of uh, uh, Cool Hand Luke. You know, like when Luke gets the, I can't remember if it's a string or what he's doing, but how he ties it to the bush and that he's pretending that he's peeing because he's like got it. Uh, shaking like it's it's tied so that it moves back and forth you know that whole shaking the bush boss and all of these witches are basically on a chain gang at the end of the day they really are so, yeah to your point it's a beautiful frilly ribbony chain gang it's not a chain gang it's a ribbon gang <laughs> but it's but it's still even though they're not manacled it's still a chain gang, and they're still being forced to do what is basically slave labor. At one point, I thought they're breaking rocks. Yeah, they are because uh, there's no rains though. Because you get to cut to the to the empty field, and farmers like, sorry, no, no work today. And then you get the, the, the ironic cut to now they're just you know breaking rocks for uh for whoever. I think this is a good introduction at African film because the access and also one is pretty too. Like there's a lot to, to, to digest. And, uh, it's not like, like I would never say Tuki Buki because that one, you should walk up to, to that because I, I don't want people going in and being horrified by the slaughterhouse footage. And like this is a good, like it, it will, this like, uh, in, like I see hints of like, Mbeti and Haroon and um, uh, Samben and like all the people like that in this movie and like this is the if if you have not seen an African film besides like District Nine which kind of counts in my mind or The Gods Are Crazy like uh, start here and then if you're into this and there are so many other movies to to get into that are similar and deal with like similar issues. Yeah, it's such a, like Mike was saying, it's such a gorgeous film that I can't imagine people not being moved by it. Even even if going in, they might not get any of the cultural references or anything like that. It, it's, it, I think, would be such a great starting place. All right, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show right after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. 
I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image? Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Join me, Jamie Benning, on the Film podcast, particularly if you enjoy stories like designer Nilo Rodis Jamiro convincing George Lucas to push him around to help gain the support of his crew on the ailing Howard the Duck. Plam, the door opens, it's George. Everybody gasps. George makes a beeline to me. I'm literally back against the wall. Or hear puppeteer Tim Rose's emotional story behind that iconic Admiral Akbar shot in Return of the Jedi. I believe the war is something to be proud of, but not to celebrate. Or how Star Wars editor Paul Hirsch tackled cutting so many successful films. The thing that I learned from working with the Palmer is that tension depends on a clock. You need to have the sense that time is running out. Maybe Oscar-winning sound designer Mark Mangini's insightful chat about his work on Blade Runner 2049. Not a, not a single sound from the original Blade Runner in the new film. A great deal of inspiration. That's the Filmumentaries podcast with me, Jamie Benning. Now streaming on Redbox, Richard Dreyfus and Mira Sorvino star in the action-packed thriller Crime Story. An ex-mob boss takes a deadly path of revenge when he and his family are targeted in a home invasion robbery. Stream Crime Story instantly on Redbox On Demand today. Rated R from Paramount Pictures. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. Sexano Sexano. V tomhle oboru je škola nezbytná. A pak hledej spíše, kde veršem se píše, že tak bude sníh, loňský sníh. Najdeš tam psáno, jak změnit noc v ráno, jak zaklítne v ano a pláč. Nocí zlých, změnit smích, zaksáno. V knihách vázaných kůži, 
zapsáno. Kouzel je na tisíc zapsáno. V jedné jediné růži zapsáno. Kouzel je mnohem víc. Dej to sem! Kdybych mohl, tak vás roztrhnu jak kuzeňky! Jenomže to už právě teď, pane řediteli, nemůžete. That's right, we'll be back next week with a look at the film The Girl on a Broomstick. She's definitely a witch. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Sam and Spencer. So, Sam, what has been keeping you busy? Coming out soon, I did a commentary for 88 Films on a couple of their recent kung fu movies, like Chinese Boxer and Disciples of Shaolin. Other than that, I've been pretty active with my Patreon, which I started pretty recently, and I've been focusing mostly on video essays. And for that, August will be a Meikokaji-themed month. And I also started a new podcast pretty recently called Twitch of the Death Nerve, which is focused on psychotronic cinema. So we cover lots of different genres. And Spencer, how about yourself? All right, I have my show, Shoots Piano, Shoots a Piano Player, a French New Wave podcast. Sam was on one of the first episodes this season, Celine Julie Go Boating, because I, I don't think I'm smart enough to talk about Rivette solo. Uh, so uh, there's that. Um, she'll be on for a couple more down the road. Scott G's been has been weird because some guest stuff has come up and have to move stuff around. So, uh, And this month is Contempt, Godar, yay? I don't know. Uh, uh, people know I, I'm not a big Godar guy, but uh, yeah, there's a Godar episode this month. And the next few months, I don't know. Could have to move stuff around. But uh, and we have a Curse Hour season and a Spike Lee season. Just go to the Podbean site and you can find all that stuff. Well, thank you again, folks, for being on the show. Thank you, Spencer, for giving us this month of African film. Very much appreciate it. It was nice talking with you about all this stuff. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. <laughs>